All right. Uh, it's 2023. Yep. We're back. And I don't want to say, oh, we're back for weekly episodes because at this point, it's just a lie. Well, I mean, a lot of life has happened the last couple of years. So. Yeah, a lot of things have gone on. But we are happy to be back and I am happy to be recording this one today. And we've been, it's been a long time coming, right? We're having tried to do part three of the Supreme Court. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court since 1898. Um, Let's do it. And uh, Hillary's broadcasting from the uh, USS Enterprise, evidently. Um, (laughs) If you hear kind of some background noise. Is it hot there? It is. It's really hot today, and so they turned oh. on the air, and it's it's causing a lot of overhead noise, and I'm I am sorry about that. Wow, January. Um, interesting. Well, it's cold and rainy in San Diego today, so um, odd. Um, well, yeah. Well, let's get right into it then. Let's do it. Welcome to an incomplete history. I'm Hillary, and I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. All right, so Supreme Court. Um, just to remind everybody, we ended up what kind of, we ended with Plessy versus Ferguson. And I think our argument has been through our first two essay arguments or, or episodes about the Supreme court is that a lot of people like to frame the contemporary court. And I mean, the 2022, 2023 court and, and kind of recent court courts as being political in a way they never were. But I think what we've done a very convincing job of doing over the last previous two episodes is kind of showing that's not necessarily the case, right? It's always been a political entity and it's always been a place of, or a site of contention. I mean, even down to not even being able to decide on how many justices should sit on the court until the late 19th century was when it was kind of finally set into place. And something that I think is interesting that I'd like to point out as we begin today, and it kind of leans into our discussion of just like how important this entity is, is that there have only been 17 chief justices on the Supreme Court. That That's less than half of the number of presidents, right? I mean, the power that this office holds and the lifetime appointment of it I think that's kind of what's really important in discussing this as well is like there's a real continuity um, and it's very, very slow to change because if you think, you know, about the number of presidents versus Supreme Court justices, it's like that's actually probably a more coveted and lasting position in a way. I mean, it's it's designed to like the idea of lifetime appointments is to prevent kind of um, popular shifts in attitudes, changing things and instead making it until there's kind of a broader cultural shift. Those changes don't kind of get recognized by the court. 
Um, I mean, there may be some value to that. I'm, 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 I'm not going to argue there is necessarily no value um, in that attitude. The problem is, uh, it, it it causes a lot of problems, right? I mean, it, it causes kind of these old attitudes to maybe persist. It makes it very yeah. slow to change. It makes it very difficult to usher in change alongside cultural shifts that are taking place because you end up yeah. having people who are really just dying, right? I mean, they're, they're aging to the point of dying um, that they're not up and coming. They're not up with the newest ideas. They're not willing to entertain the latest shifts and culture um, or public opinion even. Right. And they're not really subject to public opinion. And so it makes it a very static entity. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I agree 100%. And sometimes that might be a good thing. Um, I can't think of a case when it would, but sometimes it may <laughs> be a good thing. Um, I mean, I mean, I think on some theoretical level, it might be a good thing. Um, sometimes I just, our experience, and I think what we're going to see is the cases we talk about today and and I don't know, I've got, wow. Um, I've got seven cases I want to talk about. Okay. I've, I have up one, two, three, four, five. So I wonder if there's overlap or not. I'm sure you're five or five that I'm talking about, but I think two of the ones I talk about are ones that I can convince you are important to talk about. Okay, go ahead. Um, I mean, so let's, Let's do this. Let me rearrange them chronologically. Um, and let's talk about uh, the 1944 case, Korematsu versus United States. That's what I have as number one. Look at us on the same page. Um, and Chief Justice at the time is Harlan Stone. This is FDR's court. This is famously the court that he threatened to pack if he didn't mm -hmm. get his way with the New Deal. And Korematsu, um, it basically upholds Japanese internment. It basically I think says, this is the one of the worst things that's happened in U.S. history. One of, I mean, there's so many things, but I think to me this is one of the worst ones and especially solidified by the court. Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is to kind of skip to the end. Uh, in 2018, Roberts repudiates the decision. It says it was a bad decision. And, well, it's and a horrible about, decision. It is a horrible decision, but it's funny because we talked about that last time, last Supreme Court episode. The court rarely comes in and just repudiates a pre or prior decision and says, nope, that was bad. That mm -hmm. was bad, bad. Um, but here's the thing, just to give a little bit of background on the case. Um Japanese Imperial Navy attacks Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Um, and uh, in reaction, the United States declares war on Japan. I mean, FDR famously says the state of war has existed. Um, and in February of 42, he creates Executive Order 966, which lets the War Department um, create these military areas that they can exclude any American from. 
that the War Department really gets to come up with the criteria for who gets excluded. Um, so military Army Command of the West Coast creates this Western Defense Command and orders all persons of Japanese ancestry, including aliens and non-aliens, to evacuate to a location east of, there's a line they draw, or they will be moved to internment camps. Um, and you have to think about it, the large scale nature of this, right? Because it relocates more than 120,000 Japanese people mm -hmm. into these detention camps. And it's not just a relocation that happens. It is the stripping of their land, of their citizenship, of any of their rights, um, their businesses, et cetera, right? And so it's not just that they're being relocated, but they're having their entire livelihood stripped from them. So um, a 23-year-old Japanese-American man, Fred Korematsu, he resists this. Um, and he actually says it's a violation of the Fifth Amendment. And, um, and this limits the Fifth Amendment, if you go back to our Bill of Rights episodes, the Fifth Amendment, um, you know, has this due process clause. And Korematsu is saying, look, you've de denied me due process. Um, and you're assuming my guilt in something. I'm not. I'm not being charged with anything. I'm not being kind of tried. I'm not being convicted of anything, but this, this punishment's being visited on me. And the court rules within two years on this, which is blisteringly fast for a Supreme Court decision. Um, Supreme what Court happens when, as the war is still going on, right? Yeah. Yeah, the decision actually comes down while the war is still, the war is still very much underway when the decision comes down. And the Supreme Court, it is a majority opinion, which is interesting. It is not a unanimous decision. But it's um, a pretty good 6-3 decision. It's 6-3, six, it's six, but three justices actually were like, oh, no, this isn't good. Um, and now... What's interesting, if you're one of those three judges, justices, the dissent on this, did you see that it was going to be upheld and it wasn't going to change the status quo, so you felt kind of safe? They do that a lot of times, right? They yeah, know, they, like, okay, but they want to be able to uphold their stance, um, and they know that, well, this isn't going to go, this isn't going to hold any sway, but I just want to have my peace heard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, Frank Murphy does, he's one of the justices, he actually explicitly says in the dissenting opinion that the exclusion of Japanese, quote, falls into the ugly abyss of racism. But the Supreme Court says that it actually has nothing to do with race at all, and that it was a military necessity, not based on race, but that's exactly what it was based on. Like, I don't know how they even deny that. Well, so the, a lot of times in discussions of Korematsu v. U.S., there's a, there's a thing, well, why didn't the U.S. government do this on the East Coast? 
and the argument is it's there's clearly much more bias against Japanese Americans than there are German Americans because the United States never tries to do this on the west on the east coast with German Americans. Um, here's the thing, and and here's where well here's where I'm going to get in trouble. Um, the Japanese American population on the west coast is much much smaller than the German American population on the east coast. And it's a little bit newer. And it's a newer, and it's and government officials viewed it as easier to identify. For right or wrong, they said it was easier to identify. Um, if you had tried to do this on the east coast of the United States, um, move anybody of German American ancestry off the east eastern seaboard inland, you would be talking about millions of people. And part of what that would do is it would disrupt warp time production. Now, interestingly enough, many of the families that get excluded specifically from California are involved in agriculture, particularly in places like San Diego and Orange so County up in the Central ushers Valley. Ushers in the need for the Bracero program too, yeah? Well, so it creates so it creates a need to bring in labor from Mexico, um, but it also allows for the consolidation of these farmlands into broader agribusiness interests. Right, um, most of these families lose their property. Um, a few were allowed to, uh, a few successfully sold stuff before they were forced to move. Um, I mean, what's interesting is some of the families who were like, oh, yeah, when the when the order came out, they evacuated east and went to places like Chicago. And what they actually found in places like Chicago, there was a housing shortage in Chicago because of wartime manufacture. But there was also racism involved in the housing process in Chicago. So now they've left their house in California. They've moved to Chicago as and they would argue they're being good law abiding U.S. citizens. Right. The government told us we had to leave. So we're going to leave. They're trying to do everything they're supposed to do. And it's impossible. What good would it do moving further east? What's the point? So here's. Let me read Black's decision. Um, because I think Black, uh, uh, Hugo Black is like presenting an argument as to why this is an unconstitutional. And remember, that's basically what the Supreme Court is deciding. Is this unconstitutional or not? They actually aren't really supposed to be deciding is something morally correct. What they're supposed to be deciding is, is this constitutionally permitted? Um, Hugo Boss, uh, Hugo Boss, uh, Hugo Boss designed the Nazi uniforms. By the way, um, Hugo Black writes: Korematsu was not excluded from the military because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire. Because the properly constituted military authorities feared an invasion of our west coast and felt constrained to take proper security measures. Because they decided that the military urgency of the situation demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily. And finally, because Congress, reposing its confidence in this time of war in our military leaders, 
as inevitably it must, determined that they should have the power to do just this. Um, it's basically like a martial law sort of thing, right? Like this is an mm -hmm. emergency. So your rights go out the window in, in an emergency. And this is just the way it is. And I mean, there's even, I think there's even a recognition that it's not necessarily the, the best or nicest thing to do, but they're considering it as an emergency wartime necessity rather than this is just a normal, you know, like this wouldn't happen under normal circumstances. So we had to have this decision because of extenuating circumstances. Well, so Felix Frankfurter, and that was his name, um, writes a concurring opinion. But Frankfurter also in a journal kind of records what Black confided in him. And Black actually told him, somebody has to run the war. It's either Roosevelt or us, and we cannot. So it really is kind of like this is a war, the scale of which we've never seen. And martial law doesn't look pretty. But well, and we just we're going to go along with whatever we think is going to assist in the war effort, whether it's misguided or not. We're just kind of acting out of fear. And, and like you said, I mean, the decision comes down really quickly. Um, record time, right? While the war is still going on, it's like. This is this is all and all of it is an emergency. And they're acting out of fear and not logic, because like I asked earlier, what's the point of moving east? There's no point to that. That doesn't even make sense. Um, and, you know, to your point about, well, why didn't they do this with Germans on the East Coast? I mean, it has to do with the fact that there was a physical attack. Right. On the United States. Um not not on a state though right hawaii is not a state at that point but it's still considered an attack like on our soil um but it, it is just interesting to think like oh well you know maybe they consider there's a concentration of japanese people on the west coast since so they want to break up the concentration of people but it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but in 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 a way it's not just the relocation it's the stripping um and the dehumanization of it right of just like stripping them of citizenship in a way as a punishment for the land from which they came from. Right. There's a lot of animosity. I mean, I think that so much of it comes down to um, retribution in a way. So I think I want to read one more dissenting opinion, and this is from Robert Jackson. Um, and the reason I want to read this is Antonin Scalia loved this dissenting opinion. Now, so Jackson is dissenting against the decision. This is not to mean that he supports Korematsu's right to stay on the West Coast. Um, dissenting opinions can often be dissenting for very different reasons. Um, a military order, however unconstitutional, is not apt to last longer than the military emergency. Even during that period, a succeeding commander may revoke it all. But once a judicial opinion rationalizes such an order to show that it conforms to the Constitution, or rather rationalizes the Constitution so that the Constitution sanctions such an order, the court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of transported planting American citizens. The principle then lies about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. 
Every repetition embeds that principle more deeply in our law and thinking and expands it to new purposes. That is, it, it is kind of an amazing dissenting opinion, right? He's like, if we even get involved in this and uphold it, this is going to set a terrible precedent. That's it. Um, and that's exactly what the court is and should always be concerned about is the precedent that it sets, particularly in the context of it's a slow moving entity. It's slow to change. Right. Um, and so to consider, well, if you make this decision now, what could this entail in the future? And I think that it's pretty, you know, um, there's a lot of forethought there. And I think that it, it is a great opinion because it sets this very dangerous precedent. So reparations. Yes. So do we get reparations? Do the Japanese people get reparations? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Not really. A little bit. Kind of. Some in some, some I mean, but not like a full scale. No, No, not not a full scale. scale. Um, you know, rebuilding of the lives that were taken from them. I but think we to get some two extent, presidential apologies. we get two presidential apologies, I think. Okay, but the apologies, like, what are you going to do with an apology? Well, yes. True. I mean, you could wipe your ass um, with the apology, right? I mean, it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not helpful. They're not being right. restored in any way. Let me ask you this. Um, and I know this is a conversation we've had before. So it won't be a surprising question. Does internment consequently prevent Japanese Americans from being killed by roving mobs of hooligans in the West Coast? So, yeah, we have talked about this before. You're right. I wasn't expecting you to ask me that. But, you know, I, I think that that's a very weak defense to say, oh, we were doing it for your own good and for your own protection. I think that that's, I think that that's misguided. Is there a possibility that there would be some Japanese people who would have been hurt or targets of criticism or targets of violence or something? Yeah, I do. But do I think that that justifies a large scale, like imprisonment of them for their own safety. I mean, I think that that's infantilizing. I think it violates their rights. I think there's so many things there. I don't think that that is justified. Okay. What do you think? I mean, I'm just, I, I, I mean, first of all, it's a counterfactual, right? We'll never know. Um, we'll never know what would have happened if it, this hadn't happened. Um, but I know that some people will point to that and say, well, the reason Japanese Americans weren't targeted on the West Coast is because they all been interned. Um, so, you know, you may or may not like this policy, but it saved Japanese American lives. And it's like, well, that's, that's but kind it of destroyed a their argument. lives. It destroyed right, their lives, right, though. You know, right. I mean, so may it may have prevented some instances of violence, but for, for what? With what in exchange? It's like their entire livelihood stripped and their citizenship, yeah. right? Yeah. No, I agree. Well, we got to move on. We're 25 minutes in and we've only talked about one case. We're not going to get through seven. I'll tell you that. No, we're not. Um, The next one I want to talk about has to do with segregation. You want to talk about the Brown v. Ford? 
Brown v. Board. Board. Yeah. yeah, that's the next one. Yeah. I mean, come on. We're, we're 1954. I, mean, I would argue this is the most important Supreme Court decision of the 20th century. Hmm. Hmm. Probably. Yeah, I think you could argue that. Um, and I think it is one. So Brown v. Education. And so it's uh, Brown versus the Board of Education at Topeka basically challenges the law, the kind of the law of the land that had been established with Plessy versus Ferguson, end of our last episode on the Supreme Court, and said, look, separate can never be equal. Um, and what I find interesting about this, this is 1954. So this is height of like, you know, the 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 second red scare and kind of fears about communism the cold war is chilling the world um you've got a republican president dwight eisenhower um and this case comes up um and and why so how did it fall down so what who who agreed with the decision to overturn it, and who dissented? It was a unanimous decision. A unanimous decision. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. That's is, that is like and, wildly unprecedented. And and the whole for thing such is, an important decision. Some of these Supreme Court justices are from the South, so this is not mm -hmm. like this is not like a bunch of. Uh, kind of uh, liberal northern se uh, desegregationists. Well, but arguably, th that them being from the South further solidifies their knowledge of how unequal these things are, right? Like the schools, right? Like they see, they know firsthand that there is a massive violation of the Equal Protection Clause that's taking place um, nationwide, but particularly in the South, right? And so I I mean, you're right. It's not a bunch of like liberal people, but I think it's people who are witnessing the inequality right in front of them. And it's difficult mm -hmm. to deny, perhaps. Um, and it's also what I find really interesting is Warren, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, in his majority opinion, um, I mean, he gets to a couple of really interesting points. So at one point he says, to separate black children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely to ever be undone. I mean, it's, he's like, this is wrong, right? That this is psychologically detrimental to children. And I think it's also there. There is a lot. There's kind of a newer argument, and I think there's a lot to be said. I think Warren and, and some of the other justices who support this would agree. Is that you know we're holding up the Soviet communist system as a bad model. We have to fix this. This is the glaring bad model that we're adhering to. And that's exactly it, because it happens at the height of the communist scare and all this, right? The Soviets were using segregation against the United States, right? They were mm -hmm. using that as propaganda within their own countries to say, hey, you know, you think things are great there? Look at the way that they treat, you know, a big portion of their population. 
Um, and it was kind of a scourge on American, you know, ideas of freedom, liberty, democracy, et cetera, um, that we're trying to like go around the world and say, look at how great we are. And they're showing footage of like segregation and civil rights. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that it was almost like in a move of patriotism too, in a move of national unity to say, we've got to move away from this and beyond this because it's, it's actually making us look bad. And to bring in emotion into the decision is like, this is hurting people psychologically, hurting children, um, I think is another major shift that's, that's important that you pointed out because it's, it's multifaceted. You have, you know, historically what's happening with the cold war, um, but then we have this like shift toward a little bit of a more emotive, uh, caring sort of shift. I think, you know, that that's, I don't think that it's precedented in, especially in a Supreme court decision to talk about like, well, this is wrong. Cause it's, it's upsetting people. It's hurting their feelings. Like that's kind of an interesting, I think an interesting development in the history of the court. And again, a unanimous mm -hmm. decision. So it's, it's so blatantly obvious, perhaps. So what's, uh, you know, another interesting, interesting component of this court decision is there are two further parts of it. There's a sequel and a sequel to the sequel. So um, one of the things, and this gets back to our very first episode on the Supreme Court, the... Court has very few ways they can actually impose this decision on jurisdictions. And they also, there are questions about how are you going to do this? How are you basically going to desegregate all schools across the United States immediately? And they actually give basically a one-year recess. And they say during that year, schools can come and kind of request relief or special exemptions or delayed timelines or all this other stuff. Um, so 1955, they come back together and this is Brown too, right? Um, and uh, what the Supreme Court decides to do is that the individual district courts are gonna have the power to kind of step in and desegregate individual school districts. Um, and they're given instructions that it needs to be with all deliberate speed. Um, what does that mean with all deliberate speed? It's nonspecific. It's a, it's a wholly nonspecific. What does that mean? Today, right now, this minute, tomorrow? It's ambiguous. Next yeah, next month, next year, next decade. Like, what does with all deliberate speed mean? Oh, well, there's nowhere you're going to be able to desegregate for at least 20 years. Oh, okay. Well, you are operating with all deliberate speed. It's very right. It's like whatever. It leaves it into their hands, right? Um, and in fact, school boards start to react in very odd ways. Uh, in 1959, the Prince Edward County, Virginia School Board, to protest desegregation, just shuts the schools down for five years. What happens to the kids in those schools? I mean, well, so there were private academies that got opened in Prince Edward County, Virginia for white exactly. students only. Exactly. Right. Well, and that's private school oftentimes mm -hmm. is segregated school. 
and many private schools are founded and these academies and such are founded mm -hmm. in the wake of uh, desegregation. Exactly. Yeah. Whenever right. I, when we, we've lived in the South now for many years and whenever we hear that a kid goes to some private academy, we're like, Oh, Oh, right. You just know that what that means, right. Is that they don't. Well, so um, in 60, so in 64, there's a case brought specifically against Prince Edward County and the Supreme court comes in and says, okay, the time is now you have to desegregate now. There is yes, no yes. more. So there's like speed. forceful. Yes. Right. So they kind of overturned the Brown two decision um, to kind of extend it and make this more. And then Brown three is a much more contemporary thing. Brown three is in, um, well, the attempt for Brown three starts at the end of the seventies. And it basically goes back to Topeka and it turns out, and this becomes the reality um across the United States that in many jurisdictions, decades after Brown v. Education, real substantial desegregation had yet to occur because there were ways to game the system. Um, if you created a school district that only incorporated predominantly white communities, you could do de facto segregation. You weren't technically breaking any law. One, how they gerrymander too, like in the same way with elections mm -hmm. and such, right? Is like they draw districts in such a way and then redline them. And, you know, only certain people of certain races are allowed to buy houses in certain areas and all that. And then, yeah, that things become segregated, remain segregated due to the mm -hmm. ways that they map and district. Yeah. Yeah. So Brown v. Education. Now it gets. All right, what's your next one? Chronologically? Yeah. I, my next one's uh, Griswold. As is mine. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Look at us. I, I, I mean, here's the thing Griswold, I think, may be an important, more important case than Roe v. Wade. Um, so I think you could argue, well, I mean, now, right? Because Roe v. Wade got overturned. But I would argue yeah. it's that because not only is it about privacy on some level, but it's yeah. also about bodily autonomy for women in a way the court had never ruled on before. Right. Well, and it's also about, um, I mean, the issue though is, is so related to marriage. Right. And, and so I think that it, I don't know. Let's let's go over the case. So 1879, Connecticut passes right. a law that bans any use of a drug, medical device or other instrument to further contraception. And this is a part of like the Comstock laws and stuff. Right. I mean, it's it's a part of, you know, trying to limit um, contraceptive use or what they would consider to be sex, extramarital sex. It's not, you know, solely with the purpose of procreating. Um, and so you have a gynecologist who ends up opening a birth control clinic in New Haven, um, alongside Estelle Griswold, who is the head of Planned Parenthood. Uh, so this so is birth con control. Just to be clear, this is birth control. This is just not birth abortion. control. Yes, they birth are not control. selling abortive patients and not performing abortions, yeah. anything like that. This is simply well, birth control. And it's at this time, so it's you know in the 1960s, and the birth control pill has just debuted, right? The pill is a brand new thing. Um, and so they open a clinic 
to sell birth control and they were arrested and convicted. Um, their con- convictions were affirmed by higher courts. Um, and so they wanted to use the clinic to challenge the constitutionality of the statute under the 14th amendment before the Supreme court about privacy. Right. Um, so it's not a unanimous decision. It's a seven, two decision. Um, but it, it, it's, it's not just about privacy, like you said, but it is, it's about bodily autonomy and being able to make decisions for women to be able to make decisions about their own bodies. Um, but it's the, the catch here is that they're selling, you know, the birth control can only be given to married couples, right? Mm-hmm. So what's that about? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's surprisingly late for that to be still kind of the, the catch there. But I want to get to, so we don't run out of time. I want to get to William O. Douglas writes the majority opinion on this. And I think what he writes here, and this is something that's come up more recently with Roe v. Wade and some other decisions. Uh, the foregoing cases suggest that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. Various guarantees create zones of privacy. So the idea was that you would protect these marital zones of privacy. And what Douglas and the kind of some of the justices that sided with him are saying is like, look, that that we all kind of understand what it is. The problem with that is who gets to define what those penumbras are? Well, and that's the thing, because it's defined in the context of marriage, you still have men who are going to be in charge of contraceptive use. And if they don't approve of their wife getting birth control, she won't get it. So, I mean, to me, the Griswold decision is important, but it's still placing the purview of bodily autonomy and control in the hands of heterosexual couples, and in particular in the hands of men. Because they're the ones who are going to have to basically sign off on it. And and I still think that that's, it's a pretty regressive decision. Even though it's a big decision, it's regressive because it's not actually giving privacy and autonomy to women um, on their own, but only in the context of being married. I mean, let's be clear, though. It was very easy once Griswold v. Connecticut was decided to pretend you were married. I mean, what do you, what evidence do you have of that to pretend you're married? You slip a ring on and you walk in with some guy. Okay. So you're saying that they weren't asking for like marriage certificates and things like that. No, I mean, they weren't. I'm sure some would, but it was, here's the thing. So that's 65 by 72. The Supreme court comes in with Eisenstadt versus Baird and says, no, even unmarried couples have a right to, to buy um, not even couples, right? It's just women have yeah, the right women. to women go the and right. buy. Now, to but that's fair, so women... recent, 1972. But, God, that wasn't okay, that long but that's ago. On a national, but that's a national level. I mean, there are local jurisdictions where women have been able to buy contraceptives since Margaret Sanger. See our episodes on eugenics, for example, um, where Margaret Sanger had been operating. I mean, you'd had women in like a place like New York City where they could get contraceptives. Now there's a huge social stigma attached to the purchasing of contraceptives. I think there still is in some ways, a social stigma. Um, I mean, it's maybe been mediated a bit because uh, particularly for young women, 
Um, some of them go on to birth control at a relatively young age for various reasons. And those reasons aren't necessarily related to pregnancy. Um, right? Right. I mean, and there's a lot to be said about birth control and the harms that it causes and that we're kind of trying to figure out. But yes, that, you know, a lot of women are put on birth control to regulate their periods or to um, regulate hormones and, you know, act treatment for acne and things like that. But we've also mm-hmm. discovered the extreme psychological impacts, um, blood clots. I mean, there's so many risks that come along with birth control and where it does allow for some bodily autonomy, the risks that come along with it are what we're discovering are pretty profound. Like hormonal birth control causes a lot of issues. Um, but it is, you know, the advent of it is the first time that women are allowed to have some form of control over their reproduction, you know. And so it's it's crucial. The Griswold decision is crucial um, shortly after the pill rolls out um, in, you know, ushering in or paving the path for women to choose. And then you have the Roe decision a few short years after. Now, since that's been overturned, you do have to wonder about, I mean, I have been concerned about birth control. I mean, the penumbra thing. Right. And there are, I mean, there has been a concerted effort for decades now um, to make it either extremely hard or impossible for particularly young single women to get birth control. Um, And it's interesting because that's not necessarily a conversation that would have been held back in the mid to late 80s because of the fear of AIDS. Um, Kind of condom distribution in high schools became ubiquitous throughout most of the country. We've now kind of moved back to a position where uh, I think there are probably more high, public high schools in the country that don't allow Compton distribution than do. Um, and, you know, before we kind of get into Roe v. Wade, and I do want to talk about Roe v. Wade, although I don't want it to overtake our entire conversation because I think it could. And maybe it should. Maybe we should devote an episode of nothing but Roe v. Wade and, mm-hmm. um, and the 22 decision. But I want to talk about a case in 67, which I are I would argue is one of the most important decisions also. Uh, is it Miranda v. Arizona? No, it is not Miranda v. Arizona. <sighs> That's 66, huh? That was yeah. next on my list was Miranda v. Arizona, but we don't have to well, talk about Okay, that. so really quickly, yeah, give us, so what is Miranda v. Educate? Uh, v. Well, it's I, the, I, you know, it's the law that passes that says that police have to read the rights of somebody that they're arresting. Right. So it's like your Miranda um, rights, their Miranda rights. So I, I mean, I think that that's really Im- important, um, you know, about whether or not I mean, the police the- can question you, what they can take, what they can't take. Um, and it, you know, this is in the wake of someone being arrested um, named Ernesto Miranda, uh, who was arrested in his house and he was interrogated for a couple of hours and the police obtained a written confession from him. Um, the written confession was admitted into evidence at trial. Um, because you know, it was objected to because the defense said they didn't advise Miranda of his rights to have an attorney present during the interrogation. 
So the jury um, ended up finding him guilty based on this confession. But on appeal, the Supreme Court affirmed um, of Arizona affirmed that his rights were not violated. But then when it goes to the Supreme Court, they say, you know, you actually have to tell people, right, if you're whatever you're taking from them can be used against them, that they have the right to an attorney to be present. And I think that that's a really important landmark decision because, well, first of all, I mean, it's like the basis of all cop shows, <laughs> but reading the Miranda well, rights. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. It's one reason I didn't include it in this is it, it, yes, I think it's a critical decision, but in the context of what we're filming at the end of January, 2023, we're recording. I mean, there was just an event in Memphis where some policemen, for all intents and purposes, executed a man on the street, um, beat him to death. Um, and none of them, inter- none of them stood up and said, no, we shouldn't be doing this. So, I mean, having a discussion about getting your Miranda rights read, I think it's an important discussion, but like, it's like, we have people who are being killed by the police at this point. It, right. But yes, I think to say that there, the that there is a basis, there is, there are rules that they're supposed to be following. There are things they're supposed to be doing. There are, there are parameters for well, professionalism, I mean, yeah. et cetera, right. That they exist. And to, to consider that they've gone so far outside the bounds of that in the 21st well, I mean, century, I think is, is right. and, interesting. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, is it, it seemed to me, I didn't, uh, yes, having rights read to you and all of that and for our procedure, it's critical. But I think at this point in so many jurisdictions across the U.S., the police seem to be so outside the bounds of that. Um, you know, I wish our discussion was, did he have his Miranda rights read to him or not? Instead of course, of, of course. Of course. Um, but yeah, point taken. Yes, it was a de- it, it is a, a, an important decision. Um, okay, what's your 67 decision? Loving v. Virginia, which is desegregated. Oh, huge, right, huge, de- huge. It's anti-miscegenation laws are struck down. And so miscegenation is the process of race fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, and anti-miscegenation laws predated the founding of the United States. Even before the United States was a thing, places like Virginia had rules about who you could marry. And these yes, rules all the way back to the 17th yeah. century. And these rules surprisingly applied to white men. White men were banned from marrying certain people. Um, now, this doesn't mean it didn't happen. And in fact, sometime in the early 19th century, you start to get communities, kind of rural communities, specifically in places like Virginia that form, that have kind of a long history of uh, mixed race marriages. And in 67, um, a couple actually challenge uh, Virginia's code. They are charged under Virginia code uh, of violating the prohibition of interracial couples. Um, And uh, it's Mildred Dolores and Richard Perry Loving. And the interesting thing with Mildred Dolores is 
she seems to identify herself as black, but she's a little more complicated than that, right? Um, she self-identifies as Indian, Rappahannock. Um, she Her also name was Mildred support- Jeter. Mildred Dolores Jeter, yeah. Oh, okay. But Dolores is her middle name. Now, I think in the I think in the official papers she's referred to as Mildred Dolores Loving. It's Richard Perry Loving and Mildred Dolores Loving. Um, but you know, in the in the trial in Virginia, the assertion is made that she is, for all intents and purposes, black, because Virginia's law had kind of been crafted in such a way to prevent black and white people from marrying. Now, what's interesting is this, the, I don't know if it's interesting, it's horrifying. A black man marrying a, a black woman marrying a white man was not viewed as much of a problem as a black man marrying a white woman. So a black man marrying a white woman usually ended up with both of them dead. Um, at least the black man would have been lynched. Um, and there are some horrifying cases. And if you want to know more, I, you know, I encourage you to go read those things. Um, yeah, but it's pretty awful. Um, but uh, they challenged this Virginia law and um, the ACLU steps in and actually assigns attorneys to the Lovings to kind of defend this. There was a recent movie that's made of it. Uh, I think it was an HBO film. It was pretty good. Um, it was a. It was not a bad thing. Um, and again, I think this this Loving v. Virginia thing is uh, the state overstepped its bounds of control of people that there's no compelling reason that the state should be interfering in who can marry whom um, as long as they're legal age. Um, And it's a unanimous decision. Uh, There is a concurrent opinion, but it's a unanimous decision, which again is kind of Striking, right, that this decision is unanimous. Nobody on the court comes in and says, well, no, there are reasons to oppose this. Um, But it fundamentally changes uh, kind of the legal framework about race in the United States between Brown v. Education and Loving v. Virginia is, you know, these pillars of segregation are being dismantled systematically right first the segregation thing um separate but equal now the kind of bans on interracial marriages are being kind of dismantled well there's a lot about self-determination right i mean i think that there's mm -hmm. several court cases and going back to griswold going to loving versus virginia and roe v wade where there's a lot of discussion about making personal decisions and and what mm-hmm. the what the government has the right to be involved in or not involved in, and mm-hmm. there's a lot to do with privacy. And I think that's kind of the theme. Which is not which is not which I think we go back to the um, Griswold v. Connecticut with that penumbra thing, right? Privacy is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, 
there's no explicit guarantee to privacy. And I think this is in the wake of the 22 decision about Roe v. Roe v. Wade. People are worried about that, right? How far can you go with this? If you're if you've got a court now that says, well, there is no real pro, uh, there is no real kind of protection of privacy. You don't have a right to privacy. How far can you go with that? Um, but yeah, Loving versus Virginia, and then you know, I mean, we've got more contemporary cases. I mean, I wanted to get into the Lawrence v. Texas. Um, That's my last which, one. Which basically says um, you can't criminally punish a consensual adult non-procreative sexual activity. Once again, yep. about self-determination and privacy, right? Right. right. Um, Keeping up with that uh, theme, I think. Uh, this is not a unanimous decision. No. Um, in fact, Antonin Scalia argues it's one of the worst decisions ever. Why does he argue that? Why does he argue that? Well, he says it's immoral. Um, but he thinks that the court can make decisions based on morality. That's very interesting, isn't it? Well, so he says, today's opinion is the product of a court, which is the product of a law profession culture that is largely signed on to the so-called homosexual agenda. And by which I mean the agenda promoted by some homosexual activists directed at eliminating the moral opprobrium that is traditionally attached to homosexual conduct. The court has taken sides in the culture war, departing from its role of assuring as a neutral observer that the democratic rules of engagement are observed. I mean, Scalia hated gay people. But it's it's another it's a situation, though, where it's like, what is the role of the government in stopping consensual decisions, right, mm -hmm. on behalf of consenting adults, right? And I mean, it does end up, you know, how the majority, right, end up saying, like, you can't stop. The, it's a majority. Because it's anti-sodomy laws, right? I mean, it was well, illegal. Lawrence, so Lawrence was... So Lawrence was charged on an anti-sodomy law but exactly Lawrence because texas sodomy was, was illegal up until 2003 basically right. in texas and we right? get a whole discussion about sodomy laws i mean hillary knows i've done some research on this like the stuff in the colonial period and early american period every state has like sodomy laws they're just not enforcing any of them right right they're and i mean technically a sodomy law can be enforced against non-homosexual people, right? Right. I mean, right. And this is the, but this is the thing is these laws aren't equally applied and they're generally deployed to target specific groups. Um, and then I was going to end with Oberfell versus Hodges, which is. Well, um, so that's the thing. I think we have to do Roe and Oberfell versus Hodges and, and their own thing. I mean, I don't think that yeah. we can cover either of no, those in six either. minutes. Yeah. That just doesn't seem no, appropriate. No, we can't. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem appropriate or fair. Um, yeah. Well, wow. I mean, it's funny because I, I, I wonder if the United States is still a thing in 100 years. <laughs> if it's still a thing in 100 years? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I'm like Countries don't last forever. I mean, maybe the new nation of Aquatica. 
because we're all underwater at that point. I don't know. Like, yeah. I, I just wonder in a hundred years from now, you know, will, will people looking at the Supreme Court at that point kind of look back on these cases and agree they're kind of pivotal moments or will they be like, uh, we're going to assign those to the dustbin of history. We don't care about those. Um, but I mean, it's, I, I think we did a good job of supporting our argument. The Supreme Court's always been political. Um, and to kind of imagine a, um, a nostalgic past moment when it wasn't is to ignore the reality of what the court did. Um, they always responded to, to external political pressures for good or ill. Right. And even though, again, that they're a slow moving entity, they do respond eventually. Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting, and I guess we'll talk about it in more depth, but with the Oberfeld decision in 2022, it's like that was not a popular decision. In 2015. Oh, I'm sorry. No, but I'm sorry. The I'm sorry. The um, Planned Parenthood decision versus the, the 2022 yes. decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, uh, that's not a popular decision, though. No, not at all. Right. So I don't know. I mean, yes, yes, they do respond, but they also because the court was packed in the way it was, it's actually not really representative of what people want at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's the argument. Um, I don't know. I That argument to me bothers me a little bit because I think it distills. So the argument, to make it clear what the argument is, is there are four Catholic Supreme Court justices now. And that's much larger than the percentage of the United States that is actually Catholic. So the argument is that Catholics are overrepresented on the court. To me, that smacks of that old anti-Catholicism that's like deep in the U.S.'s DNA somewhere. I don't think it's so deep, but yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think it is deep, right? I mean, here's the thing. Deep in the sense that it goes way back, but it's right at the surface. Yeah. I don't think you have um, to search too hard to find it. We're just starting to move to something that seems like gender parity on the court. We still aren't there. We're close. We're close. We're closer than we've ever been, but that's not saying much. I mean, the first woman on the Supreme Court was Sandra Day O'Connor, and that's in the 80s. So it's not like... <laughs> We doubled the number of women on the court. Yay. Well, someone asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg one time, how many women do you think should be on the Supreme Court? And she said nine. All of them. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> she said it was all men for a long time. Why not? Well, I mean, if you're arguing. That would never women, happen. No, but I mean, if the argument is that women can virtually represent, if that men can virtually represent women on the court, then why can't the reverse be true? Wow. That's a lot of Supreme Court. I'm done. We did it. We, we I'm got done through with Supreme it. Court. You're done. You're done with this one. You just said you want to talk about Overbell v. Hodges. Not immediately. Not immediately. Right, right, right. All right. Well, that was fun. Um, 